0: The following conversation with Amanda Janu experienced a few audio issues. However, this is not going to change the incredible content and our talk about the fourth industrial revolution and an economy that works for us. Enjoy. Hey everyone, episode 20. Welcome back to Two Nobodies. We took a little bit of a break, but we're back. And I'm so excited to have our guest today. Her name is Amanda Janu. I kind of just randomly messaged Amanda and thankfully she responded back. I really appreciate that. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Kyle can't be here today. He's busy with his two kids and his busy life as a dad. So uh, we'll miss him today, but just happy to have you here, Amanda. So welcome to Two Nobodies. Can't wait for our conversation. Aw,
1: oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it as well.
0: So you're from, you're from Vermont, the state of Bernie.
1: Oh, absolutely. Bernie bro for life. Is he like, <laughs> like
0: beloved? Is that a real thing? Like us Canadians are infatuated with American politics, of course. And so we see Bernie and he's just like this, almost like this superhuman kind of figure that we see across the border. Is it the real deal? Like Vermont is in love with Bernie?
1: Yeah, I mean... He's been our representative forever, before he even became a senator, and I think there was this time when there was a guy who came up from Massachusetts and was trying to run for the representative seat, and Vermont's so small, right, so every state gets two senators, but your mm-hmm. representatives are based on population, so we only have one representative, so it's actually harder, technically, yeah, to get into the House than it is the Senate. Um,
0: okay.
1: and so. I think, I guess, you know, political analysts or whatever probably had encouraged this guy to move up to Vermont to try to get a congressional seat. And he ended up spending, I can't even remember, maybe like $25 million or something like this on his campaign. It was like a huge, like, smear Bernie campaign. And Bernie, I think, ended up spending something like $5,000 on his campaign. And he won, like, by a landslide, right? Like, it probably was more than... 5,000 obviously but you know like very small amounts just because yeah I mean I think there is an appreciation and like a trust of him but I mean people are also critical of certain things as well but the fact that the United States would have elected him I believe yeah like to me is just such a great sign for the country I kind of gave up on US politics when they passed Citizen United I was like, okay, well we're not even pretending that we're not a privatized government and then that was a twenty I think that was, think it was like, like, like a twenty ten decision or mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and I was working in international development and I just sort of decided to just stay and work with countries that I felt like had more of a motivation to meaningfully mm-hmm. yeah, support the the interests of their people. And then I remember hearing whispers from some friends in Vermont that Bernie was gonna run for president. And I was like, what? "Like that would be nuts. So I came back and I like volunteered on this campaign a little bit, but I couldn't have even imagined like the, how much um, support he would end up getting. And that for me was, yeah, a big moment for believing in America, I guess, again, you know? Because I think yeah. we get a pretty bad rep in the media And our media. Yeah. But deep inside, I think we've got some radical kindness.
0: Was that the first time for you that really kind of captivated you in terms of politics? Or were you kind of like I would say from afar for me, like the Obama campaign, watching that was very sort of inspiring. And I got caught up in that. Was that was that sort of similar for you or was Bernie sort of really the first time?
1: Bernie, definitely a lot more for me than Obama, actually. I mean, Obama was amazing, right? And especially the campaign. I think his presidency for me was really disappointing, especially with the financial crisis and him coming into the financial crisis and there being a moment to really fundamentally transform our economic Mm. and financial systems, and none of that happening at all, Mm. yeah? So, like, his chief advisors were former Goldman Sachs, like executives right you know what i mean you're like having the problem trying to give you right. the solution um and so that was really frustrating and then obviously like the muslim ban and you know like all of the drone warfare and all these things mm-hmm. right, that were just like a little bit of a sure. bummer and i just feel like i don't personally i believe that there's probably a lot that the military industrial complex like plays in terms of US politics that we don't really fully understand but if there's one person you would be able to determine how much an individual as a president could really do it would be bernie sanders right like because he hmm. doesn't shift his message yeah like he's not he's playing inconsistent. yeah
0: yet. for sure he's
1: gonna yeah. like push for the exact same things no matter what position he's in and so it'd be interesting to see what he would be able to accomplish i guess as president was the thing that i was really excited about um i was
0: i was reading well i'm still reading the book is massive obama's uh obama's memoir and he he goes into, if, if you haven't had a chance, he goes into the depths of the financial crisis and he really spells out why he chose each and every individual to be a part of his team. And then he talks about like, you know, really like the progressive side of his of his party and how they were saying the exact same things that essentially you're saying, right? Like they're frustrated with like the people who were selected, that why he's not turning Wall Street on its head, all these kind of things. And he spells out... At least, what was going through his mind in terms of the decision making? I found it fascinating whether folks agree with that or not. Like that's, that's what was totally the rationale? Pretty... Oh goodness, you're you're gonna catch me here on the spot. Um, so I think part of it was that because it needed some major structural changes, it it was hard to find the people who really understood the system. And then, in order to actually, you know, personally, when I saw that crisis, and I was so surprised that not one person, like none of those CEOs were in jail, right? I mean, like, it's just a horrendous thing that happened in the 2008 financial crisis. Like, people losing their entire retirement. It's just pathetic and sad, right, frankly. And so I was always frustrated with, like, why no one lost their jobs or no one, like, went to jail and, and all this stuff. And and it apparently it bothered him so much. But in order to get people to lead these companies going forward, because I guess... Um, they needed some of the major banks in place in order to sort of keep the financial system afloat. They needed people who really understood the system. So it's one of those things where it's like, if you're on the inside, you can kind of really control the situation because nobody understands what the heck you're doing outside of that system. And so so they they don't
1: understand what they're doing either though. Yeah, like the financial transactions are far beyond like the human mind's capacity to even possibly yeah comprehend they're like going at such a speed but it is interesting I mean especially compared to Iceland for example who had by far much worse like financial collapse like they were ostensibly just a giant yes. hedge fund as a country they had their their economy collapse overnight and instead of saying oh too big to fail I mean the government put bankers in jail yeah they protected like the um Domestic sort of savings and they allowed for that entire sector to fall and you know, they they rebuilt on the basis of Yeah, much more diversified and much more people led sort of recovery efforts So it's it's a choice right
0: for sure and he and the thing is that he I don't know I think to his credit, he acknowledges that it was his choice like he's like, I wasn't comfortable to do that like yeah, I, I wasn't, wasn't comfortable to 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 make the decision of flipping it entirely because of x y z reasons and he spells that out and I'm not gonna remember those reasons so i'm not gonna i i'm gonna butcher that but but it's it was it was worth from just like in terms of studying how someone's decision making and I felt like you know you take it for what it's worth if it's honest or not, but he's pretty detailed about it so I mean. Anyways, I thought it, I thought it was a good sort of reflection. Again, whether people agree with that or not, that that's I really uh, love
1: yeah. autobiographies for that reason, like really understanding people. Because I read Bill Clinton's My Life yeah. a long time ago, and his rationale, equally for neoliberalism and NAFTA and like the you know all of these things, you know, it's the incredibly intelligent people, right, who yeah. have their reasons for doing the things they do. It just ends up screwing most people over.
0: Yeah. So what a what a really tough job, right? I mean, like the, the questions that come to their desks, right? Like there's no black or white answer. It's the problems that nobody has a good, like if, if it was easy, it would have been solved already, right? It's just an immense challenge. And especially like, I'm assuming in the United States, especially most people look towards the president, even though the president doesn't have a lot of power in in a congressional system, right? Whereas in Canada, for instance, the prime minister of Canada has an immense amount of power, especially in a majority government. So it's just interesting to to sort of uh see how Americans view the presidential system and how much faith and belief they have in their in that leader, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're usually pretty divided, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> as it's everywhere, I feel like these days, but yeah, but you know what, that, that kind of, uh, that, that actually prompted sort of our thinking and talking about the fourth industrial revolution. And that's really, you know, one of the main reasons why we wanted to have a conversation, although I'm really enjoying this conversation about politics, but, uh, but the, 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 but the main reason was that we were starting to see these big disruptors that are happening in the economy from a technological standpoint. And we started, thinking about, okay, this is really gonna shift the economy. We started realizing, we started researching that there people are identifying a potential fourth industrial revolution that is already happening or that we're on the verge of. And like, what does that do, right? Like what is, what is that gonna do for people? Like that was our concern, right? Especially as we not only position our lives and our careers, and thinking about how we move forward, but also for our kids. A lot of our conversations that Kyle and I have are about fatherhood and parenting, and and thinking about sort of what our kids, how our kids are going to develop, and all those sort of things. So that was sort of a major, a major piece for the fourth industrial revolution. Is 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 how is the this economy going to pivot? Is there an opportunity to pivot in a different direction? Have the the systems in the past are they so ingrained that you can't actually make major shifts um, but it doesn't seem that way from our initial research is that these these major disruptors in our economy have the potential to really you know create some opportunities for the better and so then when i when I um was looking at people and organizations that were looking into this into into you know how we can make an economy that better fits benefits everyone or benefits, you know, the people or makes the economy work for everyone, essentially, um, the organization um, that you work for, We All kind of came up. Did you, do you want to talk about We All um, and sort of the work that you guys do?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, it, We All is the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, and it's an organization that's not too old, actually, it only began maybe two and a half years ago. But the idea is, it's a an alliance of organizations, governments, academics, activists, citizens, and generally just change makers who are mm. all committed to transforming our economic system. Um, and so, it started with a realization that there's so many different movements that are either they're dealing with symptoms of the economic system, like climate change or mental health or inequality issues, you know, right. or are, are advocating for fundamental shifts in our economy, like circular economy, donut economics, you know, um, B Corp, a lot of different sort of movements therein. And, and realizing that transforming something as big as the economic system requires us to Come together right to build a power base and to recognize that there's power in numbers Mm -hmm. and so we all emerged as a umbrella by which to house all of these different um, movements and organizations and to illustrate their interconnection and the fact that they might come under different banners but at the heart is a realization that like people and planet are not here to serve the economy yeah like the economy is here Mm -hmm. to serve us and we have the power and we have The capacity to mold and direct it according to our values right and to make it work in service of people and planet and so that for us is a lot of what we work on is amplifying the work of our members um, trying to shift public perceptions around the economy so for me personally and I don't know how it is for you in Canada but in the US the term economy holds this crazy power right like you say Oh, this is going to be bad for the economy, then it's immediately illegitimate. Or you say it's going to be good for the economy, then all right, let's go. But
0: mm-hmm. it's also
1: something where it's you're constantly told it's too complicated for you to have an actual say over, right? That it's something best left to experts. So it's not both the most important thing and also the thing you're not allowed to actually have mm-hmm. an influence over. And so like that in of it, itself is like quite a paradox and something that I think we need to overcome and demystify and recognize that we are the economy. Yeah. Like that's what we're talking about. We're just talking about us. Like we're talking about the way we produce and provide for one another. And we can do that in a lot of different ways. And we have done that in a lot of different ways. And we can do it in a way that regenerates a natural environment and is just and fair, right? Like that's an option. Totally. We just yeah. need to make that choice. Um, and so,
0: yeah, that's a lot of. What a what a what a simple concept that the economy should be working for us rather than us working for the economy. I love that. What went wrong? Like, why? How did this sort of change? And actually, before that, though, I think because I know in our sort of email exchanges, you said that you had a little bit of a background in this. Maybe I think people would benefit to hear a little bit about your story and sort of how you kind of arrived at this point.
1: Sure. Yeah. I do. I, yeah, and I appreciate it. I'd love to hear your story also and what made you want to start this podcast. I don't know if you've already gone through that with um, previous episodes, but yeah, so I I grew up in a small rural town in Vermont. Um, we had like one paved road and a general store. Yeah, we did, We're too small to really have a government, so we have town meetings. So in March the town comes together and they debate and decide on how much money is going to go to the roads or the schools or things like this. So that for me was kind of my introduction to politics and economics, right? So you can imagine my horror when I went into university and people were trying to explain to me economics and I was like, what is this garbage? I was like, what are they even talking about? Because. I mean, even from the beginning, the assumption that we're all inherently, like, rational, selfish, competitive Mm. individuals, like, that doesn't resonate with my understanding of people, yeah, or my own self-identity, and that's, like, really foundational to the entire discipline, and there's a lot of other obvious assumptions, and so I got really interested in history of economic thought, like, understanding where these ideas came from, their Mm. historical context, really passionate about... The issues with neoliberalism so like this spread of this idea that the government should take a hands-off approach to the economy and it should just go off on its own that there shouldn't mm-hmm. be any sort of guidance or values yeah <laughs> like, somehow mm-hmm. like put upon it and so I went into the world and not really knowing how one combats something like neoliberalism. I got really into industrial policy, actually. I worked for the UN for a long time as an industrial policy expert because industrial policy is kind of like old school development theory. So it's where the government takes a really active role in protecting or promoting certain sectors um, or economic Mm. activities or businesses because they think... And traditionally, it's been manufacturing. So that's why it's called industrial policy because, you know, Mm. the... You know, you try to make more of your own stuff, right? Like transform your raw sure. materials and your things into something new to add more value to it. And so I spent a long time working with governments to try to design industrial policies, like strategic interventions, but always very cognizant that the countries I was working with didn't have a lot of space, honestly, for that kind of meaningful intervention because. Yeah, the power of a lot of multinational corporations and the global economic system, and all of these things, made it very difficult um, for them. So, for me coming to We All has just been a dream job. Yeah, like I cannot explain to you how much I enjoy this job. Right, I just right. get to nerd out about the economic system all the time and just speak about radical visions and alternatives and people love it right it's not just like oh wow well, you know like that's naive you should
0: well the funny thing is that when you say this there's like a genuine expression of, of like love for your job it's not just like a, just a you know shameless promo like i <laughs> yeah. can see that this really like this is the job and this is the kind of work that you want to do so that's fantastic yeah,
1: yeah. no i feel really lucky definitely i mean but it was a long road you know to get there and a lot of different experiences yeah. and i'm grateful for all of them but yeah, psyched to be able to talk about like this with you here. You know,
0: yeah. yeah. Is uh, I would think that the um, those who are industri- who are who study industrial policy and are industrial policy experts, I would think in maybe North America, this is an assumption that that's sort of maybe a dying breed, just because of if you're saying a lot of it is based on manufacturing, that a lot of you know manufacturing is sort of shifted elsewhere. Do you have a sense of that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, within the United States itself, actually, a lot of our industrial policy happens within the military. Mm. So a lot of because traditionally, it's, it's where the government's putting in money into research and development, R&D, right. like technological innovations, like all of these sort of things that often for us happens in that black box of 60% of our government spending that we're not really sure what's going on, but then comes the internet. Yeah, or mm-hmm. <laughs> then comes mm-hmm. whatever stuff, right? Um, and so we do it, we do it a lot. It And we do it still as well with a lot of subsidies for agricultural farmers, for example. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the corporations, we give a lot of tax exemptions to the biggest corporations and a lot of incentives to them, so it exists, right? It's just moving on in its most traditional form.
0: It's amazing how much of a catalyst military R and D has been in terms of all these technological advancements. Hey, a lot of the things that we sort of use on a day to day sort of come seems to have come from just all that money that was put in like the '60s and '70s and into the military seems that way I don't know for sure but
1: yeah and I mean I think around the world honestly I think we underestimate the amount that government expenditure has been the source of the things that we most appreciate in our lives so there is a lot of really wonderful innovations that happen at the community or in the business like like sort of sectors but a lot of it comes from very concerted and purposeful investment by the state in
0: these kinds. well i was reading even with the covid vaccine that if government didn't invest you know all the money that they did it definitely de-risked um these companies these pharmaceutical companies to pursue these vaccines because it just wasn't as profitable uh so yeah it, it's probably a really that's a really good um really good point i was thinking about your you were talking about you're from rural vermont it's funny because i just read a story about apparently this this folklore hero and i can't remember his name and it's bothering me right now Ethan Allen. no no this was so when i say folklore me i don't know if that means real so sometimes i say words and i don't really know if they actually make sense so i i apologize for that but uh it was this person that apparently had a a a, a he, he lived in rural Vermont and he had this personal land and the state wanted to put um, a freeway or interstate through that part of land. And he was so furious with this and he decided to light himself and his property on fire. Do you know about this?
1: I do not know about this. Yeah, this no. is... Uh...
0: Oh my goodness. I just read this article. like It's so funny because I did I did not do this research. It just popped up in one of my feeds. I don't know if I was what that was about but yeah so he apparently locked himself in his in his farmhouse or wherever he lived and set himself on fire because it was the day before that they were just going to take his property away and it was it was really really sad and everybody um, you know just sort of remembers I guess this 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 man and what he did and so more recently I guess there's There's a tree that's sort of the last sort of remaining artifact of his time in this property. But this tree is right near this parking lot. That's like a parking go, I guess, off the off the interstate or the freeway. And and that tree apparently is kind of becoming a hazard to cars parked near in that parking lot and so there was this huge sort of conversation with the community uh and 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 the the town about whether they should cut down this tree they had a full engagement and then at the end they said that (laughs) there was going to be this sort of memorial for this person um where the tree was uh to sort of honor his legacy and i was just like okay so that's what it's like Like to live in rural vermont i guess (laughs) i
1: just really love it it's just so sad i'll have to to send
0: send you that article uh sort of off after we're done recording recording, because it it, was uh, i think i read it in the new york times and it was it was was definitely definitely worth it it was was one of my morning reads and i was just so i was was, like like, had every emotion as i was reading i know it makes
1: me feel a lot of emotions too definitely oh my goodness yeah
0: so some no that's okay there's times where we're talking and our kids are yelling upstairs or whatever so it's uh, it's par for the course but um what was i going to say now i was going to say oh just it's just rural life to me is is always fascinating i grew up in toronto which is a huge obviously urban environment um now live in edmonton which is you know still a, a big city uh, relatively, I guess in Canada, we have not the biggest population, but, uh, relatively anyways, it's, it's, it's a big city. And so my wife, she's from a small town in Ontario. And, uh, she just tells me about sort of how life was there, but just even more at a rural level. I just, it's, it's, I find it interesting. I find just like the way you describe sort of how decisions are made and how people are just engaged on everything. It really reaffirms that, uh, politics is local, right? And, and, and to your point the economy is, is really should be about people and should be at a local level so I think that's really Well I think
1: it, it helps when you have real transactions and interactions with people right? Because I mean that's really what when the economy becomes like a real thing right? It's yeah. we're, we're making something together and we're exchanging something between us and I'm giving you something right? Like that's that's what this whole system is. It's just we're increasingly removed from one another in those transactions, so we don't see how much of ourselves we're giving to others all of the Mm. time in what we do, you know? Um, And so it can feel alienating or, yeah, far away, but it is, I mean, it's a beautifully intricate system. It just, and a lot of cooperation. Like, we talk a lot about competition, but there's amount of coordination and cooperation mm-hmm. that's involved in that right and trust For that's sure. involved in it yep. but yeah i don't know i mean it is the the rural urban thing is interesting with covid because there's a whole reverse migration happening right now i don't know if you're experiencing that I have a lot of people
0: where people are trying to escape the urban environment so that they could you know maybe get some rnr or something like that uh,
1: are you experiencing
0: that a lot in yeah we there there are parts of alberta like because we um the west part of alberta kind of borders the rockies and so just beautiful uh towns along the along the rockies and so uh, they have they've had to actually close down access to these towns because of people traveling in from calgary and edmonton into these small towns that just can't handle that extra population so is that sort of what you're thinking you're speaking to well, they, they've closed access or they've limited, they've had restrictions in terms of accessing those towns uh, just because of, yeah, they just can't handle those right there, that kind of uh, volume right now. So, yeah, I mean, we've had a
1: huge flood of people coming and moving to Vermont. Apparently this happened after nine 11 as well. I think in times of crisis, people are like, ah, oh, Vermont, that's where I can weather the <laughs> apocalypse. Yeah. Like everything's going to be okay there. And it's good. I mean, we need more young people and stuff. So it's, yeah, it's fine. Um, it's good, especially if it's not COVID homes, like people with their like second or third or fourth home, like if you're coming to like hang out, I think it's really, yeah, it's, it's a really good yeah. thing. But it's, it's an interesting shift, right? Because everything was focused on us all moving towards these very concentrated mega cities. And that was mm-hmm. what all of the trajectory looked like. And then just this past year, that's shifted a lot because there's been a lot more remote work as well right so again with like the technological revolution and the opportunities to be able to connect in a way that doesn't require to be in the same physical space with one another and i think people living in rural areas i'm biased obviously but it's really important like i remember i don't know how many years ago it was maybe like seven years ago reading a news article that said for the first time ever the majority of humanity now lived in cities as opposed to mm. in rural communities. Mm. And I thought about the stars, yeah, and about all the majority of people living in these big cities and not being able to see the stars and how much mm. the stars have been the foundation of so much of our spiritual and scientific development and, like, mm. not having the capacity to see that into have that moment of like ego loss right and like i'm just like i am this thing relative to that thing and to be connected enough to nature to notice climate change to not know it in an abstract way but to see the environment changing you know like all of these things i think are really positive if people are yeah are in areas where they can yeah be more connected to nature
0: I love that. and I love that. And also when you talk about connecting to nature, I was thinking the same thing. I, I don't know if there's stats on this, but I suspect that there are many people who are just feeling like they need to be more connected and are embracing that sort of more isolated lifestyle or or taking on sort of a little bit more agriculture and, and just shifting their way of life because and just wanting to sort of slow down and focus on what really, really matters. Because you're absolutely right. When you get caught in a city, like you're just, you just... Nothing else, you know, we always say, in, in uh, most people in Canada say it make fun of the fact that when someone's from Toronto, they say you're the center of the universe or the center of the world sort of thing, right? Like that's Canadian perspective and context just for you. But, but, uh, but it's funny because I came from Southern Ontario and I would say that when I moved out to Alberta, which is quite a ways far West, you really realize how big and awesome the country is and how there's so much more in terms of the Canadian people, but just geographically, like you really do get trapped in that kind of city bubble and, and, and and it wears on you. So it is, it is interesting that you say that my wife has this sort of dream of like wanting to live like kind of in this isolated place with a tiny home and, and all that stuff. And I don't blame her because, you know, sometimes things are just, it's just too much, right? You're inundated with all kinds of crap, frankly. Right. So,
1: did you know also that dirt is an antidepressant? Dirt, dirt is. is? Mm-hmm.
0: Now no, you're talking you know, about like really good dirt, dirt? Like, like that's, that's rich in nutrients. Just that matter, like any dirt,
1: yeah. Like okay. Um, okay, yeah, like it interacts with our, you know, like neurochemicals in a way that is like yeah, boosts our, our like dopamine levels and stuff.
0: That's funny because I just hauled seven cubic yards of dirt in my yard yeah. the other day. Are so, you feel like so I have to reflect and feel. feel I, I feel, feel less depressed, depressed and, and that, that will be, be scientific <laughs> proof because seven cubic yards was a ton, a lot of, of dirt. <laughs> uh, I want to go back to uh, sort of when the economy hasn't been working for us, but we've been working for the economy. Where, when, in your view? When did that sort of shifts happen? Like, did that start to happen sort of after the first Industrial Revolution? Like, walk me through that thinking in terms of when things started to not go the way it should have been going.
1: Yeah. So the Industrial Revolution, for me, is the most fascinating period of history. It was definitely when so many like socio-political economic transformations happened for the West. Uh, you know, um, but also it was the emergence of what we will now understand to be economics, and so yeah. So you have the industrial revolution that was happening around like the turn of the like 17th, 18th century,
0: right? And mm-hmm.
1: along with that came unprecedented amounts of wealth generation. So. <clears throat> Adam Smith, right, who is often heralded as the father of economics, was like, wow, like, where's all this wealth coming from, right? Like, what is the source of this beautiful opulence and, you know, money that we've never seen before? And so he looked into this system and said, okay, you know, this method by which we are taking from the earth and transforming it into something new. We've developed new systems like producing things at scale and divisions of labor and all of this stuff. But importantly, his major point was this system is being driven, right, by not our benevolence but by our own self-interest, right, and that everybody working on the basis of their own self-interest will – magically actually serve the good of the whole and that was by people yeah producing and competing and whatever and so the time period was relevant right because you're talking about you're moving from a, like a mercantilist era where kings and monarchs and things were like controlling a lot of the way that people's lives were happening and the way that things were traded and all of this stuff so there was the liberalist sort of movement and allow us the freedom right like to to live our own Mm -hmm. lives you also had really strong judeo-christian assumptions around original sin yeah so the fact that like one thing you can count on is that people are kind of shit yeah so like that was sort of underpinning it and then you also had this like whole sort of philosophical exploration into human nature and like Hobbes and Locke and the purpose of government, like relative to society. And so all of that laid the foundations for a very particular emergence of economics, which previously there had been discussions of economics, but economics was understood to be either, you know, like the household, the way that people provided for one another. Mm. It was understood to be, you know, um, like the a means towards the improvement of our quality of life, like that was very Aristotle kind of, you know, yeah. and then this now became the economics is about understanding wealth generation, right? And so how we transform the earth and utilize people in the interests of generating wealth, right? And so that as even a framing yeah, sets the stage very much for people and planet kind of being like just little cogs, right, into a system of wealth generation, and so. And you also then had at that time. This is kind of nerdy. I don't know if this is getting too nerdy for is you. Yeah, great. Yeah, but there was at you know then came like John Stuart Mill and the utilitarianism, like and Bentham, who were fundamentally interested in happiness, right? Like what matters for happiness, but didn't really feel like they could measure happiness, so. what
0: time was that about would you say
1: that's like in that i mean bentham was probably like early 1800s you know what i mean like mid 1800s with like mill and stuff like that so we're
0: still in that like when they section out the first and the second revolution we're still from my understanding is we're still kind of in that first period
1: yeah absolutely and so and they you know the idea that maybe we don't know what makes people happy but we know how much wealth like let's assume that wealth makes people happy right and because an indicator it,
0: happiness, yeah
1: too. because it it really does right like up to the point that it ensures that we feel secure in our basic comforts more money makes a huge difference yeah, it makes a mm-hmm. massive difference to our happiness. It's just that once we have security and our basic comforts, more money doesn't make us any happier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so like that's But they couldn't have foreseen, right? Because they're living in a time when there was a lot more physical sort of and real material deprivation than there is now. And so like all of that is kind of like a rosier picture of like how the economy works and what the point is. And then obviously Marx who came along was like, okay, right. But it's sort of like, I had a professor once who described this my favorite way. It's like, imagine that Adam Smith is like Steven Spielberg, like talking about the economy. Then Karl Marx is like Tim Burton, yeah, About the same movie, yeah? Where he's just like, okay, well, actually, let me explain to you how you're making all this wealth, and it is by exploiting people, yeah? Like, you're just not giving them their fair Mm. due. And so then it became a bit of like a... A real social issue right like a rights mm-hmm. issue because this it was an ethical issue of you if you and I do something together we're gonna be able to do more than either two of us alone right and so the question is how do we share the outcome of that yeah and so the point is is that if you are the owner of capital and Marxist perspective right then you deserve to have more But if we're both putting in the same time and effort, like, is that fair? Yeah, you know what I mean? And so, like, this is where, like, ethics come in and all of these things. And so then in the, like, turn of the century in the 1900s, going into, like, the 30s, 40s, they had, like, like, it was still always political economy. It was, like, a philosophy. And then it really became economics when they were like, hey, actually, don't worry about this because... The economy is not even about the production side it's actually about the consumer side yeah so like value is not determined by our effort and our ingenuity and like how we mm-hmm. produce things it's determined by how much people are willing to pay for it so all of a sudden all of those ethical concerns around are on production like just forget about it right like let's just mm-hmm. focus on the consumers and then you had all of the like general equilibrium models and then economics became a mathematical sort of science and then that just sort of like since then, has been this abstract sort of sphere that people feel like they can't touch because it's it's jargony and it's mathematical. Um, but it was the foundations for then, you know, what I was talking about like earlier like neoliberalism and a certain sort of ideology for the rightful role of the state relative to the market. Um, and I think that also had a lot to do with trying to maintain neocolonial sort of trading patterns, too, you know, of um, keeping developing countries producing, like, raw materials that we would then produce in some way and then go. But now, yeah, now the production has become, I feel like I'm probably going too fast right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I no, just no, realized no, I, I just skipped, not... like, a bunch of steps in terms of the logic. Let me stop for a second and see do you have any thoughts or what i I
0: was gonna what i was gonna say is um so there's you identified some key moments that really drove some of this some of the progress and and how things move but i'm kind of wondering what role did technological development play in creating these shifts right because uh you know like we talked about at the beginning with the fourth industrial revolution it my understanding is that a lot it's a lot of the the, the the technology advancements that are really dis- that are really going to disrupt the economy and really creating the 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 revolution that we're talking about today was that sort of the same thing early on, or was it because of of these people and and sort of how how people are starting to view the economy, which was really the the basis for that that revolution and that shift. I'm just trying to understand, I guess, like, is it both of them? They're kind of intertwined and working together, or was one sort of really a little bit more dominant?
1: I mean, I think probably that's, that's very much relative to your perspective, but absolutely. I mean, the, first of all, technology. We often think of it as a machine, like as a physical thing, but in mm-hmm. reality, it's just a process. Right. So we've had technology forever in the sense of it's the process by which we do things. Right. And so that can be a physical act, a tradition of certain methods of agricultural production, for example, or, you know, inherited wisdom around, you know, different types of like medical remedies, whatever. Right. Like that's all technology as well. But it's once it comes in the form of like a reified thing, right, like a thing like which... In the case of the first industrial revolution, like, um, you know, with steam engines and with, um, you know, the cotton gin and with these Mm -hmm. sort of things that were like really profound in terms of like efficiency and productivity and output and how much you could produce in a period of time, it did. I mean, it had huge transformations for society, like society transformed overnight. I mean, you ended up having... Even people didn't used to sleep the way we sleep now. Yeah, like mm. people used to sleep like babies sleep. Yeah, like in little sections throughout the day. And then, like with the Industrial Revolution, it became this idea that it's like you stay up all day and you like, you know what I mean? Like mm. sleep like these sort of. Periods. I didn't know like that actually. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and yeah.
0: then you. <laughs> no, I was just saying that people slept the way they did, and in that there was a huge shift as a result of this sort of revolution.
1: Yeah, and I mean obviously also then you had massive like rural urban migration that was happening. You had huge like sweatshops, child Mm -hmm. labor, huge industrial pollution, all of these things. And so that's why, I mean, some people were like, oh, this is amazing. And those were the people because the theorists at the time all came from really wealthy backgrounds, right? You know what I mean? So they're like, this is great. Like everything's so good. And then you also had – Movements like the Luddites, right? Like people who are physically going to destroy machinery because they were like, you are destroying our world, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so I think you always end up having these sort of counterbalance movements of seeing the disruptions that are happening from the world and the way we live. I mean, I, I, I can imagine for you, especially as a, like a father, for example, like social media, yeah? the amount mm. that that has transformed our lives, the amount that it is influencing children, right? Like, for for sure. yeah, like, it's a good thing. <laughs> what do you think? You know? Depends, yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely something that, uh, I mean, who knows what it's going to look like, right? Like, we Kyle and I jokingly talk about on this podcast how our social media presence is terrible. Like, we don't have, uh, you know, none of us, when we started this thing, Kyle was like, "Do you have a Facebook account?" I'm like, "No. Do you have an Instagram account? No. I have a Twitter account. Okay, let's go with that. Both of us are just not connected because we just find many times it's just a disingenuous way of really building relationships. Uh, you know, there's purpose obviously for them, but then there's so many things that come out. Like this year was the year of TikTok. I don't know what that TikTok is. You know, and so who knows what's going happen. I downloaded like-
1: it. It is very fun, actually. Is it? I've I, heard really really a good it I don't know. How, I don't really fully understand how to use it, but. Um, but yeah, I haven't
0: posted anything. Like, you're not. I don't yet, know.
1: But it's something that I've been grappling a lot with, honestly, where, especially mm. in this new role that I have, I feel like I should be more engaged in social media because it is mm. an incredible tool by which to communicate with an audience you wouldn't otherwise communicate with, right? For like, sure. to get out of your. Your echo chamber yeah like your particular bubble and to like reach other people with a particular message you might have for example about the economy (laughs) yeah like it's a possibility for transformation and I have in like my solar plexus like this resistance to it and I don't know if it's from fear of like really putting myself out there or if it's just legitimate recognition of how toxic a space it is right because especially for like women yeah and for women of color like it it can be a very hateful hateful place right and it and it's not that I'm I don't think that I can deal with that but it's also yeah I prefer to have a conversation than just like to yell into the ether and see what I get back (laughs) yeah (laughs) but that might be what I need to do right and so it was um one of my comms colleagues suggested maybe TikTok could be a good way I can make little like educational videos about the economy
0: i know someone who um she's just infatuated and she like has learned so much in terms of just cooking and i'm sure there's obviously there's like social media has done some incredible things as well i guess it just depends on the way what you're going for and how you use it but to go back to your question in terms of um social media in the context of like my daughter who's only three who knows what it's going to look like in five years. And it's scary to think that she could be on social media in five, six years, but that's just a reality for a lot of kids. And, and what role will we play in terms of controlling that for her? And, and it's just, it's a fascinating thing to think about. It It is incredibly scary. And, uh, yeah, I have no idea. I don't have an answer for you. I, I think, I think there's, I think just embodying her with incredible values and just, hopefully trusting her that she can make some good judgment calls in the future but i don't know what the platforms are going to look like you know it's probably only going to be easier i think the other thing that i personally have uh when you talk about a feeling in your solar plexus is, is is just how that data is handled right i think we all have seen the social dilemma and and you know hear about we just don't know what these companies are doing with your data and that to me is a is a is a point, a major point of concern for me. So
1: absolutely, a hundred percent. And I mean, it is like the big data industry in and of itself is something which we need to probably get on pretty fast. I like Europe's doing a better job with it because they have some regulations in place to protect some of this privacy. But a lot of countries around the world don't even have the legal infrastructure to be able to try to protect themselves. From this kind of thing, yeah. so there's a huge risk to a lot of, especially the most vulnerable countries in the world, in terms of yeah, the data um, and information and all of these things, like sort of being misused. And yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I think there's been a cultural shift also, though, where we don't. Well, actually, it's a question because at the beginning of this, you said a lot of people are really private nowadays, right? And this is this is interesting because I feel like people don't seem as worried as I would think they would be about these things or I think they would have been in the past, right? Um, you just sort of accept it as, okay, yeah, they have all my information now, right? Like they're yeah, going to yeah. do what they're going to do with it. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Do you think people are becoming – like? more private as a result of this well it's hard to know i mean
0: those people who are really private probably i suspect don't have a really strong social media presence but there's also this you know uh people want to be heard and validated everyone wants that to some degree especially we live in i think we're living in a more fragile society and and i'll be honest i'll be I'll, i'll share like you know we created an instagram account for for this podcast right and i'll post and Whenever there's like a like, it's like, oh, there's a like, right? I get caught up in that. I'm telling myself like, this is, it's bullshit, right? Like it's, it's, it's great that someone likes your post, right? But like, it's like to, to be in such a fragile mental state where your happiness is dependent on someone liking a post, like that's, that's a little ridiculous, right? But it's, we, we've kind of come to that point. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just a, it's a worrisome thing, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is designed that way, right? Like to like trigger that sort of reaction, a bit like mm-hmm. like a Pavlovian dog or whatever is that what it's called. I yeah. feel yeah. <laughs> like yeah. yeah. Um, but I also think that we are very social creatures and we need, right? Like a certain amount of
0: But don't you think the level of socialization is just not it's not as meaningful. It doesn't feel as rich. I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing here. I'm, there's so many ways now people are, especially with COVID, it's just been, uh, unbelievable that people are just having these, uh, posting these live conversations on Instagram or, or through social media and then people can kind of tune in. And so that's sort people have found ways to, to maintain some level of socialization, um, compared to, um, relative to what it was prior to. So that, that, that part's incredible. But generally, like, it just seems that the, the level of engagement and the meaningfulness from these conversations is just seems very surface or superficial. Like, and I personally maybe have a hard time with that. Um, and so that's why I have a hard time sort of posting and engaging on social media. So, yeah, for me, I think it's like if I were to be on social media, I'd want it to be, I'd want to make sure that that engagement is really authentic.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I do think that people are more drawn to authentic, right? Like communication that some people are able to do online. But I feel you in the sense that I'm a little concerned. So I've been abroad first of all, let me say this, for about like 12 years, so coming back to the States, I was back for a little bit like a couple years ago, but I'm a little worried with how much our conversations being mediated through, the majority of our conversations being mediated through social media has made us very ungracious communicators in the sense Mm -hmm. that we are not very sympathetic or even interested in intent, yeah? So, like, we don't even really care what somebody somebody might have be trying to say. Like, we are all, it's very much about a deconstruction of language, mm-hmm. yeah? And if you're using certain words or not or things like that. And so we are reading for, with the intention of finding something that somebody's saying wrong, right? Like, as opposed to sort of really trying to understand what somebody's trying to say and engaging with them. And it's unique to, I think, the written form, first of all, right? I think with Mm -hmm. videos, you don't have as much of podcasts, for example, because you can hear, like, intonation and things like that. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just, I think we need a little more understanding right now. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Like, of one another, like, especially right now, like, everybody's struggling so hard all over the world. Yeah, it's just so shit. It's just really shit. So, for me, like, yeah
0: like having a having a little patience with other people yeah and and to add to that like just an appreciation for the work that is put out there right like I was talking to a colleague I don't have this is just anecdotal but but it just seems like even with music production right like do you remember like when you'd be anticipating when your favorite artist was going to drop their CD or their latest album or whatever you'd be anticipating that now like something comes out on on iTunes or whatever and and you just you listen to it and then you're on and you're like thinking what's the next thing right like there just seems to be there's there's so much stuff that we're being hit with and so much media that we're not appreciating and taking the time to slow down the amount of effort and work that people are putting into something and and you know it's supposed to be someone's appreciation is supposed to be captured by the heart symbol or a thumbs up right it's
1: I mean, it's really interesting. Yeah. So let's get us back to the point around technology, right? So, right, thank you. Fashion. I should be the one who's <laughs> facilitating this, <us>, so <laughs> thank you. No, so the whole thing is that technological innovation, right, the major orientation of it to date has been to increase productivity, right, to, like, reduce mm-hmm. the amount of labor or material input that is required to produce something else. And so that, with that in mind... Most people, especially like economists in the 60s and 70s saw, I guess what, I guess we would call it around like the third industrial revolution, right? (laughs) Um, Saw like massive increases in in productivity and assumed Hmm. that what would happen would, we would be at a 15 day work week now. We would have a lot more time. Yeah. So with productivity and not needing to work so much, we wouldn't work so much. And it's yeah, been the opposite. Yeah, it's been yeah. the opposite. Like the most productive countries in the world, people are working the longest hours. Yeah. And so we, this is where like the flaw in the system is, right? Because we are not, there. like they say in economics, there's like a time wealth trade-off, right? Mm-hmm. But um, in reality, we've become, and our pattern and our sort of forced into being, consumer addicts and work addicts, right, and wealth mm. addicts. And so it's just like, just keep more, more, yeah, like just more, 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 right. more, yeah, and it's, um, there is a real paradox of choice that is coming from all of the options that we have. There is real time poverty, like time poverty has the same impact on our mind and our bodies as like food. Starvation, yeah, like Sorry, when you say time
0: poverty, just so um,
1: well, just like for... when you are if you don't have any time to do whatever you want, yeah, like if you are constantly working or like have a lot of like family mm. obligations or whatever it is, right, like you're time poor, yeah, mm. like it is it has the same impact on you as like being like food starved. Yeah, like mm-hmm. it's that sort of deprivation. Like, we really, really need time. And we don't have, a, like, we have built a society which is so fixated on like growth and more and bigger and get it, right? That mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. have a very hard time giving ourselves what we need actually, which is connection and generosity and and notions of enough right like how much is enough we don't have any conception of enough right like it can never be enough like that would be to be lazy right to be like oh cool sure. i'm good now <laughs> yeah like that's yeah. not even a part of our cultural narrative and like yeah. that it's all intertwined with this economic system right and the coming back to your point around like where and did we become slaves to this right as opposed to viewing it as in service of us because we have more than enough wealth yeah, I mean, we're at a point now where globally there's something around if you divided global wealth across every individual living in the world right now, every person would have about $70,000 of wealth. Is that yeah? right? Yeah, okay. and I mean, we're talking about like 8 billion people, right? Like, I mean, there is wow. a shit ton of money in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we are not lacking in wealth or in clothes or in your food or in whatever, right? Like, there there isn't scarcity, actually. Mm. but we keep producing more and keep doing more um, because we're just like yeah like let's just keep going <laughs> yeah let's keep doing it and i do think that covid is interesting for that like i think there's we're in it so i don't know how much we'll be able to fully know what the long term impacts on it will be but mm. it is forced a pause in some ways for a lot of Pretty people, sure. not all people, right, in the world, but it is for somewhat of a pause and it is also forced a re examination of what is really essential. And it is not hedge fund managers, yeah, <laughs> and billionaires, yeah. <laughs> and it's like it's like, you know, like the people who are really making out right now. Um, And I think that will be really interesting to see how that plays out with recognizing like nurses and teachers and farmers Mm -hmm. and, you know, like the really essential parts of our economy because we can value them. We can make them the most successful jobs and industries Mm -hmm. in like our societies. Like that's just a choice. We just currently provide a lot more incentives to large investors and companies that are really efficient at generating wealth. Not so much the industries that are efficient at generating well wow. being.
0: In the in the work that we all does, have you heard uh, amongst your alliance partners about folks wanting to measure this more effectively? Like, so you know, we the happiness index, right? Like something like that, or a well being index. Uh, my former alma mater, the University of Waterloo, I think they're they've developed like sort of some sort of index of well being. Like, do you think that would really help and potentially shift? Policy to really, to really think about the economy differently, but also not only policymakers, but obviously just the broader, the broader you know public to just really understand that it's not just the economy, but there's a whole host of factors that contribute to our ha- happiness.
1: For sure, I mean it's already happening. So one of the things that we all helped instigate was WeGo, which is the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership, and this is an alliance or a partnership of governments which include right now New Zealand, Iceland, Scotland, Wales, and Finland. And all of them have developed alternative measurements for progress. Mm -hmm. So to try to move beyond GDP, so gross domestic product just tells you how much you're producing and consuming. Yeah, it doesn't really tell you anything else about your society's level of well-being, right? So there's a lot of things that are sort of missing. But so the assumption being that you know um, the yeah that we need to move beyond using purely economic measurements as our mm-hmm. yeah our barometer of success as a society, and so there is there are a lot of movements and across a lot of societies. The challenge, of course, is that when you move beyond something really simple like how much money something creates to what matters for well-being, there's a lot of mm-hmm. factors, right? There's environmental and social and personal and familial. There's values. There's Democratic engagement. Exactly. Civic yeah. engagement, you know, transparency, yeah. all of these things. And so that's the reality of the world, right? Like mm-hmm. we shouldn't shy away just because it's complex, but it also means that making choices on the basis of much more multidimensional measurements and like frameworks for progress is more challenging right and so i think we are in the midst of this shift i don't think it's a coincidence that most of the wego leaders are women (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i do think that as we're seeing more female leadership emerging in the world and less traditional voices entering into some of these spaces we are also experiencing an expansion of our thinking, right? And a new renaissance Mm -hmm. in our thinking. So alongside maybe the fourth industrial revolution, where same way that we view the economy as sort of this abstract force that is just happening out there, we tend to view technology that way as well, that it's its own self-evolving, like, you know, force that is, yeah not somehow a product of the human mind, right? And it is. Mm -hmm. It's always a product of the human mind. And so, therefore, it should be beholden to the same kind of ethical reviews, right, that any Mm -hmm. human action should be. And so I personally think that, you know, we have all of – we have philosophers who do reviews of innovations um, or proposed research in the medical field. Mm -hmm. we should have the same one for the technological field right Mm -hmm. because it has huge implications for our society and I think we should think about it a little bit right like what is this technological innovation going to bring to society right and who is ultimately controlling that innovation because the one of the things that I will rant a little bit about to you is intellectual property rights yeah Mm -hmm. like that is Intellectual property rights are some bullshit, okay, because they really came about purely as a way to limit the capacity of developing countries, yeah, when you have firms coming into their country, like setting up shop in their country and producing things for their capacity to actually produce them themselves ever, yeah. And so you're limiting the flow of information and ideas and processes and innovation in order to maintain a consolidation of power and wealth in the hands of certain people,
0: right? And like So just a just to on on that one and and I don't I don't know enough about this, but and I could be misunderstanding this. My understanding is that international internet, intellectual property rights are protected because companies feel that if they weren't, it gives them no incentive to really do additional research, right? Because if it's already out there, then why would they invest more in R&D? Um, if their rights aren't protected. Right. Well, then why that? would
1: you even produce anything in the first place? Mm. You might be out-competed eventually, right? But that argument doesn't even really make sense, right? Like, of course, it's going to protect people who are able... But I don't think that you should be able to own ideas. Ideas are not things that should be owned. Yeah? Like, they should be things that are free. <laughs> yeah? they say, But, you know, like, they are a product of the collective subconscious. They are a product of, you know, a human society and they're the things that drive our innovations. And so holding that, right? And saying that you can't have this for 20 and then add another 20 and add another 50, right? Like years. I mean, there's definitely ethical issues, but even from an economic standpoint, it's not really just, I don't think. And so part of what will make the fourth industrial revolution, a source of betterment for society, I think, is around a re-democratization also of technological innovation, right? So what do you mean by that? So like dispersing right now, we have huge concentrations in terms of who is doing the innovating yeah, and Mm -hmm. who controls what technological innovations are, are occurring. And how the profits from those are ultimately like funneled. So, I mean, I think for most people, what would be the clearest is, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, like these sort of tech companies are the ones we're most familiar with. But there's obviously a lot of other kind of tech companies, but they buy up in a second anybody who is even starting to potentially compete with them, right? And so they've established ostensibly monopolies within these industries in terms of the control of our information and our our interconnection and the way that we're even relating to one another in this day and age, right? And that's too much power for any group of people to have and that's what companies are ultimately. It's like, you know, a group of people. <laughs> yeah. And so they shouldn't they shouldn't have that much power. And so it's important for us to allow for yeah the information, the foundations, the innovations to be dispersed amongst many different companies, right, or firms or initiatives um, in order for, yeah, the sort of fruits of that to be shared more equitably, I think, and more accountability for it as well.
0: When you you think of additional opportunities that we could pursue with this fourth industrial revolution, like what what would be your sort of top – Three or five that you feel like here's, a, here's some things that we need to, to move towards because so that we can really make the economy work for people?
1: I think we're one area is definitely around systems thinking. Hmm. So I feel that we are in a moment where we are moving beyond linear very structured thinking and embracing much more complex, emergent, messy, like, systems, processes, Mm -hmm. like, multidimensional, you know, like, all of that stuff. And that is huge, right? Like, it moves us beyond silos. It connects us across spaces. It engages the realities of the world, right? And I think there is huge benefits to technology's capacity to help us conceptualize, visualize, map some of these complexities and systems, I still don't think that you can ever make up for a human discussion on these things also, right? But I think it can help, especially when we're talking about a system which is global and includes so many people, um, allowing for avenues Of direct input. So I don't know if you know about like the Dedicim Barcelona, but like globally right now, we're seeing a lot of demands for greater, like a revitalization of democracy, honestly, right? And so that's happening at municipal levels, like national levels, regional levels. But in Barcelona, what they did after the financial crisis and a huge amount of, yeah, public dissent, they created a platform where people could just propose their policy proposals, engage in a direct communication about them, vote mm. on them with each other, all of this stuff, and they're automatically adopted by the, the city government, right? Like, as, you know, like, yeah, and so very direct democracy being able to come as a result of some of these technological innovations. Um, and again, I mean, technology has always had the capacity to make our lives a lot easier yeah like for us to have more time for us not to have to do like really difficult physically difficult things (laughs) yeah and that stands yeah it's just that I don't think we're really yeah it's about us really taking advantage of that and making it clear that the fruits of the technological innovations need to be shared with everyone. So all of that, I think, we have the capacity to liberate the world. Honestly, from yeah. when you,
0: when you talk about time, something that on me was someone we had on the on the on the podcast, and he runs a charitable organization, and he said that they he moved their organization to a four day work week, and he has some preliminary data to show how revenues have increased, engagement has increased, donations have increased, just all their, their barometers or metrics for, for success have, have improved, staff engagement, mental health, well being, all that stuff has increased. And so his, his pitch is that like if we're a small organization of, of five to 10 and, and we can make this with not much money, um, and he pays them, right, for, for the fifth day, like it's four days, but he pays them for five days. Um, if they can do that, then a whole lot of other people can do that as well. So,
1: Absolutely. I mean, they made the argument. So during the Industrial Revolution, right, like people were working all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no five-day work week until you had the labor movement. And mm-hmm. with the move towards a five-day work week, we were like, oh, we're going to lose so much output and productivity mm-hmm. and all of these things. And it wasn't true. Yeah, like But people can't work that much. Yeah, we can't focus for that long. We also, as an organization, recently moved to a four-day work week. And for myself personally, like it has been really, really beneficial for feeling more balanced and more, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, less exhausted. And because I think at the end of the day, all we can bring is ourselves to a scenario. And if we are exhausted and we're cranky and we're we're feeling like martyrs in the space, then it's not going to ripple very well. So the more we can, yeah. This is part of the, have you ever read David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs? No. No. He died during COVID. Tragic. Not because of COVID, but one of the most brilliant modern minds, I think, in like new economic He wrote this book and it highlighted that in the U.S. and U.K. right now, the majority of people feel that they are working in a job that should not or need not exist, yeah? So meaning they're Mm -hmm. doing work that is either not actually helpful to anything or is actively detrimental, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah? And that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem. Yeah, like that's a big problem, right? Like that... That many people are feeling that because a lot of our personal well-being, a lot of our identity, our connection, our meaning in life comes from feeling like we are both in service to others Absolutely. in some way, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the avenues by which to be in service to others are really low paid yeah relative to the ones that are super extractive and harmful to others right and Mm. so we just gotta like switch that yeah like (laughs) you know i'm not saying we gotta get rid of like all of the you know like stock market traders or whatever but they're not the most beneficial people to society yeah and so i don't think that they should be paid you know like Twelve thousand times more than a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> yeah, like that's a really useful job to society, and so all of that is just incentives. Yeah, it's policies, it's collective decision making. So we have the capacity to determine what kind of innovations we want to see, what kind of economic behaviors we want to grow, kind of activities we want to
0: flourish, and so. So, so well, what would that, would that ideal, ideal economic, economic model, be model be then to create that, that shift? shift?
1: Well, I mean, so for me, honestly, I don't think it's about saying what is the ideal economic model, because we need to yeah. build it, yeah? Like, this is about building it in our location and in our context. So I think it's problematic to think like this economic system that has been we feel like is imposed upon us, that we're mm-hmm. going to wait for the perfect one to be fully imposed. Because the reality is that it's just about figuring out how we do want to produce and provide for one another, right? And to do it in a way that makes sense for our geography, our culture, our history, our like, you know, our politics, all of those things, taking it into account and to do it in a way that engages as many voices as possible, I think is the major thing. So it can become a blueprint, right? It can become a blueprint for other places, or, you know, it becomes the model in and of itself for what uh
0: that that sounds like though it would challenge sort of globalization right and and the way the current economy works big time and it's interesting because i i don't know what your thoughts are on this but with the pandemic it seems that people that countries are realizing that the fact that you know Canada had this trouble of a lot of our PPE was being developed by other countries, and we didn't even have the manufacturing capacity we relied on other states to to, to provide us with that. And we got caught ourselves in trouble. But it's sort of a very relevant and, and, and uh, mainstream example, I guess, for for how people how countries are recognizing that they need to develop things more locally but that's really going to challenge sort of the global supply chain and the economy. But is that, are you saying then that that's an okay thing or how would you rectify that?
1: I mean, I do definitely think we should all be making more of our own shit, 100%. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's important for like having a dynamic, a resilient, like a flourishing sort of economy. The reality is that we can't all produce all things, right? So Mm, I think it's also naive to feel like you know, I'm gonna be like, let's be a protectionist, like totally mm-hmm. isolated country over here because you know I like mangoes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like we don't <laughs> grow mangoes here, right? Then, and, and like, there's a lot of things that other cultures and you know countries and things make that are amazing. The innovations that come from there, the medical, right, like mm-hmm. innovations, and I think those things can really be shared, but. Yeah, I mean, globalization, first of all, we are experiencing a backlash to it, but it's also important for us to think about globalization as a thing is not bad, right? Like if we had real Mm -hmm. globalization, it would just mean anything can move wherever it wants around the world. We are one humanity Mm -hmm. on one planet. Yay, right? Mm-hmm. Reality reality, that's, <laughs> that's not what right. our globalization has been, right? Like, we allow for goods to move anywhere we want them to, but the people who make them aren't allowed to move, right? Like, mm-hmm. we allow for money to move, like, at thousands of, like, times around the world per second, but we don't allow for, you know, information, right? And, mm-hmm. and like, technology to be able to like move in that way so we've really determined and built a very imbalanced form of globalization and I think that's what we're we're dealing with now personally I think we shouldn't have borders yeah I don't yeah I think everybody should be able to move wherever they want most people want to stay where they are anyways or at least just go for a while somewhere else and experience it and come back like yeah I so I'm worried about the ethno nationalist backlash that's happening mm. right now. I think it's leading it's important for us to make more of our own things and to relocalize our economies, but not at the expense of like racist, very mm. like nationalist sentiments that I think are just gonna breed war.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh I, I wanna ask you a couple uh questions. I like to ask most of our guests. I think I might have sent them to you. So the first one is if there are five people that you would want to have a meal with, supper, it could be collectively, it could be individually. Who would those five people be for you?
1: Yeah, you did send this to me, but <laughs> I don't think I fully really thought of everything. So definitely Kofi Annan. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Arundhati Roy. I don't, I don't know, know that person. That person. Oh, she's amazing. You'll love her. She's like a badass. Author from India who does a lot. Okay. She wrote um, some novels, but also writes a lot of like political advocacy stuff. Makes. Okay, okay. It's very cool. Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ida B. Wells.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I always really liked her. One more, yeah. Stuff. I don't know. I'll see. would would, would, you, would you
0: have these collective or would you want them individually?
1: I mean I think individual conversations are always nicest, right? Like you can yeah. really build a connection whereas trying to manage group conversations would really be hard, but it'd be fascinating to witness their mm-hmm. conversations. So I think if I had it as a group I would just sit and be quiet and listen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you
0: know? Well, you're talking about some pretty big giants. It's like, <laughs> it's like what do you say in that, right? Just being a fly on the wall would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, besides the circle of life what do you know for sure Mm.
1: so the thing that I believe most strongly is that the purpose in life my purpose in life I guess is to be happy and to be of service to others and that I can't do one without the other
0: Love it, man! I really want to thank you. I really appreciate your time. I learned a lot. It, it in some some regards, it felt like you know a nerding out session at a at a at a at a in the lecture hall, but it was just it was filled with you know just sharing different uh, aspects about life in Vermont. I really appreciated that background as well, and I think people will will find it really. Um, really engaging so i really appreciate that we'll put all of amanda's uh, information in our uh, description show description and i encourage you to watch this episode and and follow we all and and look into the work that they do and I, i'm pretty sure you, you did a we didn't get a chance to talk about this but i believe that you led the development of some of a policy design guide yeah. which is which i actually did look at it like, yeah? I, I did want, you like it yeah i did, yeah, I did, look, I did look, at look at it editing. um uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but I mean that's probably because of my my background and just kind of nerding out about like that kind of stuff. But I don't know if the rest of everyone want to want to hear about um, just all my thoughts on that for now. But but um, man has done some great work on that, so so be sure to check that out. I'm pretty sure you did. Uh, I think there was a, a YouTube video that you guys had put out in terms of. Um, when you released it, and and I watched watched part of that. So if you want to see Amanda's work, uh, check that out as well. But Amanda, I just want to thank you for your time. Appreciate you, again, answering my email uh, to begin with. It's a pleasure to sort of have you, Ashley. You, you're our first uh, uh, international uh, international guest. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow.
1: Pleasure to talk to you as well. I'm sorry if it was a little bit rambly at any point, <laughs> yeah, but no. it was really fun. I enjoyed it a
0: lot. Great great. Um, So yeah, look forward to uh, having you guys join us on our next episode. Thanks, Amanda.